All right. Welcome to another episode of Mormon Discussion Podcast. I'm your host, Bill Real. Grateful for the chance to be with you. Here I am sitting in the Family Pond Hurricane studio. By the way, let me turn the camera a little bit. You're going to see that I went and uh, I've got a little top hat back there. And we're going to do a little demonstration with that a little later. So there is a uh, top hat, white, similar to the one Joseph Smith used. Uh, I'm excited for the chance to kind of talk to you guys today. Uh, I'll have a better camera by the next time we do this. This is my first time by myself doing a streaming uh, live broadcast. Uh, and I hope you'll be patient with me. We'll try to work out the kinks today. If we've got any issues, please leave them in the comments. Um, just want to say thank you to all of you who have supported Mormon Discussion over the years. And now here we are doing something a little different. And I think this allows us to go back and revisit tons of topics and allow you to interact. So I want to see your comments. If you put comments on the Mormon Discussion Facebook page, or I also believe the Mormon Discussion Podcast or Mormon Discussion Incorporated uh, YouTube channel, then we should uh, be able to see those comments here. I just saw Tyson. You said I can see it. Um, I just want to make note. Uh, you're welcome to, at some point here in the show, to call in and ask questions. I, I think the whole thing about Mormonism, I joined the church. I'm a 17-year-old. told that a thousand times. I joined the church as a 17-year-old and learning the messiness. There's going to be a bell in the background that happens every half hour. Uh, I work at a pawn shop. We've got a grandmother clock that just sold a little bit ago, but the lady hasn't picked it up yet. Um, and we're going to bring in some artifacts. We've got a ton of artifacts here at Family Pond. But when I joined the church, uh, my wife just said good morning. When, uh, when you join the church, you are presented a certain narrative. And the social pressures are such that you don't get a chance to really ask the tough questions. There's this, there's this thing that just kind of distances you from doing that. And what I think most people really get a lot of uh, good feelings back about is when they start to be able to be authentic and vulnerable and start asking the tough questions. And, uh, and so this morning, we're going to talk about Joseph Smith's treasure digging we are going to talk about seer stones and the translation method a little bit. And I just want to give you guys a chance to talk, to uh, put your comments in, to make phone calls, and to ask the things you guys want to ask. And we'll just be open and honest and vulnerable and authentic about those things. I hope to do this from a perspective that will be friendly to both believers and uh, non-believers in Mormonism. But I'm sure there will be some, some funny things said and, and we'll have some snarky comments from time to time or some humorous things anyway. Um, I just want to note too, one of my goals today is to show the white top hat and to show the seer stone more in an hour and a half than the church has done in 200 years. And so uh, today you're going to see that top hat. It's going to stay in the camera and we're going to make sure that each of you get a chance to look at that. So what was the narrative that we were each given? Uh, the narrative to me seems to be, and you guys can all correct me, and I'm sure that our 20-year-olds today are growing up with a different story. I'm 41 years old. And um, when I joined the church, when I and there's also that phone will ring, but every ring and a half, it'll, it'll shut off. Um, when I joined the church, I was presented a narrative, and that narrative was that Joseph Smith was a really good boy, so good, in fact, that when he was a young kid, he had to have leg surgery and he wouldn't drink. 
And uh, as he grew older, when he became the age of 14 years old, he had a marvelous first vision. Uh, we call it the first vision because it's the first vision he had. And it's the, the first vision of the restoration. Innocent Joseph had a vision where he saw Heavenly Father and Jesus Christ. And they told him that there was going to be a great work for him to participate in. And uh, in 1823, he is visited by an angel Moroni. And the angel Moroni uh, communicates to him over the course of an entire night about where some gold plates are buried in a box. And uh, Joseph Smith then, over the course of the next four years, goes to the box, tries to retrieve the plates, and, and is not permitted to retrieve them until the fourth year. And so uh, on the fourth year, he's able to get these gold plates, and inside this box are these really cool spectacles, the Urim and Thummim as they're referred to. And Joseph Smith then translates the Book of Mormon with the Urim and Thummim. And then what we end up with, oh, I dropped my hat. There goes the hat, everybody. Uh, it's the first edition of the Book of Mormon. Uh, and so let me grab a couple of props that I have inside my hat today. Um, but first edition, Book of Mormon, we end up with it, sacred scripture. And that essentially is all we're really told. Other than the leg surgery, we're not told anything else about the prophet Joseph Smith's childhood, other than his great-grandfather, Aziel Smith, or whoever uh, prophesied that one of his descendants would have this great influence on, uh, on the religion of the world. And we don't get much more than that. And it doesn't make a lot of sense that we don't get that, get more than that, because we have more information. And so today I want to talk a little bit about some of this information. So let's start off with in 1819. 1819, uh, Palmyra is the uh, frontier. And so in Palmyra, New York, is a lot of farmers, uh, um, some merchants. But there is a very popular practice of treasure digging. And by the way, if there's anything issues with sound quality, you want me to talk louder, you want me to talk quieter, uh, by all means, please, uh, uh, you know, put a comment in. Hopefully, I'll see the comment, and we can make a, a note at that point. Um, Sally Chase is one of about a dozen people in the Palmyra area who are using seer stones to uh, help people either locate lost items or find buried treasure. The practice is called scrying and or treasure digging. If we're going to talk about specifically hidden treasures buried in uh, in hills, and Sally Chase is one among again a dozen or so residents of Palmyra who are involved in this practice. Sally Chase has a really beautiful green seer stone that she uses, and in 1819, Joseph Smith is 13 years old. He has not had the first vision yet. It is still a year away. And Joseph Smith goes to Sally Chase and says, Sally, is there any chance I could use your green seer stone so that I can use it to try to find myself a seer stone? And so Sally Chase lends Joseph Smith her green seer stone. It should be noted, by the way, that uh, Sally Chase is the sister of Willard Chase, who will also come into the story later. 
Joseph uses this, the green seer stone and he locates through the stone that there is a seer stone prepared for him, that there is a seer stone that is available for him to go fetch and use. That seer stone just so happens to be 150 miles away, 150 miles. So I looked it up. How long does it take? Because this is a 13-year-old boy on the frontier of Palmyra, New York, who is told in some visionary experience that there is a seer stone for him 150 miles away, 150 miles. The average person and on a moderate walk will take 15 to 20 minutes. If you walk a little swiftly, you can travel a mile in about 15 minutes. If you're doing a casual walk, it takes you about 20 minutes to cover the distance of a mile. Now, Joseph is 150 miles away. What that means is he has around a 50-hour trip to wherever this stone is located, and he has a 50-hour trip back. That's 100 hours of walking for Joseph Smith to go all the way to wherever his stone is. That doesn't include sleeping. That doesn't include stopping to eat. That doesn't include a 13-year-old boy being distracted by butterflies or climbing a tree or uh, sitting next to a stream or a pond, but 100 hours of walking for Joseph Smith to travel 150 miles so that he can go to the spot where, where he's told by Sally Stone that under this particular tree, buried near the tree or under it, is this rock. And we're told... Let's just bring this up. We are told that the rock was white and opaque. And so Joseph Smith uh, gets to this tree. Again, this is his story. He, he travels a 50 mile or 50 hours, uh, digs near this tree and finds this white opaque rock. And then he travels 50 miles back to Palmyra, New York. Um, why wouldn't he ride? My wife, by the way, just messaged in. Why wouldn't he ride a horse? He's a 13-year-old boy. Who's letting him use the horse for a week? I don't think anybody. So uh, again, there's going to be some level of conjecture in any time we talk about history. But let's talk about which uh, conclusions, which ideas require the least amount of conjecture. And so maybe he rode a horse. Um, but he would need the horse for then a couple of days anyway. Um, but I don't think he rode a horse. We don't have any instance of him telling the story. Uh, we don't have any instance of anyone else talking about it. So it would be a hundred hour trip to go to the tree, dig it up, find the white opaque seer stone that's his and bring it back to Palmyra, New York. Joseph then proceeded to become his own, become a scryer himself. He becomes somebody that people will go to to help locate lost items. Uh, and there, again, are multiple people in Palmyra who do this. Brant Gardner, who is an apologist for the church, uh, has written books on um, how the translation has occurred as well as other things. And Brant Gardner says this about the role that Joseph Smith and his stone played within the community at Palmyra. Young Joseph Smith was a member of a specialized sub-community with ties to these very old and very respected practices. I, I want to stop there. 
Brant Gardner suggesting these are very old, respected practices. Now, my two cents would be if you were to walk into Palmyra and you were to ask the collective people, the collective community of Palmyra, New York, you would, and if you went around and asked, what do people think about scrying or finding lost items with magic stones? I think the majority of people would be like, eh, that's kind of uh, not real. Uh, that doesn't really hold up. In fact, there are lots of legal uh, standings on the books for people getting in trouble for trying to coax people out of their money uh, in, in trade for helping them find things, uh, including lost treasures. And so I don't think it's fair to say that it is a respected, uh, a respected practice. But it certainly is there. It's in the culture. It's a small segment of the culture. Uh, and those people who do this, there would be people in the community who, when they lost something, would go to these people and would want to find things. So again, Brant Gardner says, young Joseph Smith was a member of a specialized sub-community with ties to these very old and very respected practices, though by the early 1800s, they were respected only by a marginalized segment of society. That's like saying that the idea of a flat earth is respected among a small segment of society or that uh, alien abductions are a, a respected by a small segment of society. He exhibited a talent parallel. This is still Gardner. He exhibited a talent parallel to others in similar communities, even in Palmyra, he was not unique. In D. Michael Quinn's words, until the Book of Mormon thrust young Smith into prominence, Palmyra's most notable seer was Sally Chase, who used a greenish colored stone. William Stafford also had a seer stone, and Joshua Stafford had a peep stone, which looked like a white marble and had a hole through the center. Richard Bushman adds that Chauncey Hart and an unnamed man in Susquehanna County, both of whom had stones, with which they found lost objects. I want to pull up a couple of pictures uh, here. And so let's, uh, let's pull this up. So there's some artwork here that, uh, that folks will be able to see um, depicting Joseph finding that first seer stone. So here's 13 year old Joseph having dug near the tree. Now that's quite a hole. So he's got his pickaxe too. So maybe he did take a horse. He's got his pickaxe and uh, he's got his little stone there. Um, I'm not sure if this is the first seer stone or if this is the egg one. Let's go back here. Here's another one of Joseph Smith holding up. And hopefully this moves a little faster. My system here is going just a touch slow. So bear with me. We're going to have a lot of fun today talking about this history. There's actually some things I learned today that I didn't have before. Uh, here is what looks like the white opaque stone. The trouble is here is that Joseph Smith appears to be about a 35 to 40 year old man. Um, that is one strapping 13 year old. there holding his stone near the tree. Uh, so that, that on its own seems a little, uh, a little historically inaccurate, but who are we to, to decide how to, to talk about history? Um, we've got some other photos there that we'll show here at some point too. So uh, in 1822, so 1819, Joseph Smith gets his first seer stone. In 1822, now 
1820, the first vision happens. So in 1819, he gets his first seer stone. 1820, the first vision happens. Joseph sees, allegedly, God the Father and his son, Jesus Christ, Savior and Messiah of the world. And then in 1822, while digging a well with Willard Chase uh, on the Chase property, Joseph Smith they gets down about 20 feet, and Joseph Smith ends up locating... Uh, a brown egg-shaped rock. Now, I think it's actually Willard Chase who gets the rock and throws it up to Joseph Smith at the top of the hole. And Joseph claims that he can see something in it. And so we'll share the quote from that here in just a second. But I got something really interesting. So I went to the church history department yesterday and um, I, I dressed up like Stephen Harper and I snuck into the building and I went into the vault I followed uh, uh, David Bednar behind him and I went into the vault and I ended up going into the vault and getting the egg shaped seer stone that Joseph Smith found while digging on the chase property. You can see that right there. Uh, you don't believe me. Let me show you. Let's uh, let's show you what the rock looks like. There it is, folks. It is the seer stone. I've got it. In reality, though, guys, a, uh, a listener of the program took a 3D printer and printed me a seer stone, a replica stone, same size, same dimensions. Um, and then he drilled a hole into it and filled it with some type of epoxy, uh, epoxy or hardener. And so now I've got my own replica of the seer stone. Let's bring our hat back over. We don't want to not have the hat in our viewing. We want to make sure that we show the hat. Often, um, somebody makes mention about doesn't Willard Chase claim it was his stone? Um, it, this is uh, McLean. Uh, does he claim that it's his stone and Joseph actually stole it? So here's the quote Joseph uh, used this first stone, the white stone, to uh, find the second stone. It's claimed the second seer stone was reportedly found on the property of William. Uh, slash Willard Chase. I, it might be his dad, William. I know Willard Chase is the, the younger man. He's a friend of Joseph Smith in the community. And in 1822, Chase describes it th as this. This is what Willard Chase says. I was engaged in digging a well. I employed Alvin and Joseph to assist me. After digging about 20 feet below the surface of the earth, we discovered a singularity appearing stone, a singularly appearing stone which excited my curiosity. I brought it to the top of the well. As we were examining it, Joseph put it into his hat and then his face into the top of the hat. The next morning he came to me and wished to obtain the stone, alleging he could see in it. But I told him I did not wish to part with it on account of it being a curiosity, but I would lend it. So uh, Willard Chase has the stone. It's on Willard Chase's property. Joseph says he can see things in it. And he even has the hat this early. So Joseph takes the rock and he puts it into the hat. And um, he ends up burying his face into it. And he's able to then say, I can see things. I want the stone. And Willard Chase says, you can't have the stone. It's pretty cool. I kind of like it. But I'll let you borrow it. Joseph never returns the rock. He keeps it for essentially the rest of his life. And eventually he does pass it on 
uh, I believe, to Oliver Cowdery. Um, this rock, by the way, this rock, somebody mentions, McLean also mentions, this is Iron Banded Jasper. This one isn't. This is a 3D printer. But the actual rock uh, is uh, Iron Banded Jasper. The, the story behind this is quite interesting. Iron Banded Jasper is one of the oldest rock formations found on the planet. Billions of years old. And uh, what happened was when the oceans oxidized, uh, the algae and all the other stuff that was going on settled at the bottom and formed iron deposits. Formed iron deposits. I just pulled the phone off the hook. Hopefully we, uh, we work this out okay. Um, formed iron deposits. And um, those iron deposits ended up forming into iron-banded jasper. And this is only located in certain parts of the world. In the uh, United States, there is a section in kind of like Wisconsin, Michigan uh, kind of stuff. And um, there's really no reason that Iron Banded Jasper should be in the Palmyra area. And the, the stone, you notice, is really round and smooth. When we find Iron Banded Jasper, we actually have some in our case here at Family Pond in her, I'm gonna take a phone call, watch this. Hello. All right, so um, the reason it's round and it has a polished look to it is that um, we believe, again, this is, the, this is the idea, that a dinosaur would have swallowed this rock and would have had it work in its gut like a gizzard stone. It would have worked around in its belly and it would have got polished and it would have essentially this dinosaur would have traveled or maybe it would have died and the stone would have then shown up and maybe another dinosaur eats it and takes it further along. But essentially that a dinosaur carries this rock from like the Michigan, Wisconsin, you know, further off to the West, uh, all the way up to Palmyra, New York. Then this dinosaur dies, it decays. And this stone then finds itself 20 feet into the ground where uh, Willard Chase and Joseph Smith happened to be digging in the year 1822, one year before Moroni visits, uh, and they find this rock. So on some level, like it is kind of miraculous. It is kind of miraculous that, um, that this stone would be um, even there, even present, even, even uh, sitting there for somebody to find. So there is some level of like highly unlikely coincidence that goes into that. And so for a faithful Mormon, I, I certainly honor whether they would want to see that as a miracle. Um, folk magic within the family. There's a couple of different stories that we get in regards to folk magic going on in the Smith family. Uh, it should be noted that in 1822, the same year that Joseph finds his smooth seer stone, that uh, Lumen Walters, uh, and, and let's just say this. Here's the quote. Lumen Walter serves as a seer for a treasure dig on the property of Abner Cole. Now, Abner Cole should ring a bell. That name should ding, ding, ding. You should hear something. Abner Cole is the newspaper journalist who works under the pseudonym of Obadiah Dogberry. Great name, by the way. If I ever become a rap star, I'm going to make my stage name Obadiah Dogberry. Um, but Abner Cole is the journalist who sneaks into the Granding Printing Press. Grandin Printing Press. Let's do this again. Hello. 
So at this point, I'm guessing that somebody's trying to disrupt the podcast. Give me two seconds. I'm going to go ahead and pull up all the phones because they keep hanging up. And um, that way they can't do that anymore. So give me one second, guys. All right. I'm back. So I think what's going on is that somebody is trying to disrupt the podcast because they keep hanging up as soon as I pick up. Um, Abner Cole is also hiring treasure diggers to work on his property. So in 1822, Lumen Walter serves as a seer for a treasure dig on the property of Abner Cole, a.k.a. Obadiah Dogberry, in Palmyra, Wayne County, New York. Joseph Smith Sr., Alvin Smith, and Joseph Smith Jr. participate in this dig. Walter digs three times on the Hill Cumora and suggests that Joseph might find a treasure there. This is originally sourced from D. Michael Quinn, Early Mormonism, and the World Magic View. If any of you are listening to this podcast, this broadcast, and you want to understand the early folk magic of the Joseph Smith family, of Joseph Smith himself, and of the surrounding Palmyra uh, area, if, if all of the messiness of Mormonism is new to you, there are certain books you should have on your bookshelf. Um, this is one of them. This book you should have. This is D. Michael Quinn's Early Mormonism and the Magic Worldview. Uh, when I first read this as about a 18, 19, 20-year-old, somewhere in that time, the book blew my mind. We want to make sure the hat stays in. It's not that hard to keep the hat in the, in the, in the broadcast. Um, that book blew my mind. My mind was blown page after page after page after page after page. Mind blown. Every member should have that book and should read it. And when you read it, you understand just how much folk magic is involved in the story of Joseph Smith. Um, the narrative that we were given was that in those plates, in that box where the plates were, there were the spectacles, the, the Nephite spectacles that had been preserved for thousands of years so that Joseph Smith could one day have them and could translate. Um, it, it always bewilders me that the church has the seer stone in its possession and it doesn't want to talk about it. Rarely. You have one instance of, I think, President Nelson in 1972 or something. Um, and another interesting fact, by the way, it looks like they're going to keep doing that. And we'll just let it keep going to voicemail. So if somebody wants to spend an hour wasting their time, we'll just keep doing it. Um, the, the seer stone that you see here that it could have easily been told to us. But the trouble, I think, I think what we run into in Mormonism is that if we start talking a lot about this stone and how Joseph got it, we also have to connect it to this story of folk magic. And so we have to have a conversation about Joseph Smith's magic. And um, I don't think the church wants to do that. I don't think they want to talk about the ideas behind uh, treasure digging that find themselves into this story of Mormonism and how Joseph gets these stones. So just to kind of continue on here. Uh, so 1822 Lumen Walters is in the area and Lumen Walters is a treasure digger. Uh, he's been in trouble with the law before for deceiving people. It's him that tells Joseph the first idea that maybe there's the treasure in this hill. Maybe there's a treasure for you, Joseph in this hill and Lumen Walters. It's believed D Michael Quinn, uh, 
supposes this and, and, and writes about this in the book, and there's enough evidence to lend credibility to this, but that Lumen Walters and Joseph Smith are obviously crossing paths. And it's the idea that Lumen Walters is uh, who trains Joseph Smith. It's who uh, gives him uh, kind of the, the skills to do this. And, and so it's Lumen who takes Joseph in as kind of a, as Joseph as his apprentice and teaches him the ideas behind folk magic and treasure digging. In 1826, Joseph is working with, um, Joseph is working with, uh, give me a second here. All right. I think I'm back. Sorry about that. Little glitch there. Uh, hopefully you can hear me. If somebody could just put a quick comment out and say that they can hear me again. Um, Let's uh, let's continue on. So in 1826, um, somebody said to put the hat on. I, you know, I've got my headphones on, but there it is, the white top hat. Uh, if somebody can just put a comment out and just say that you know that they've got uh, this back on, that would be great. Uh, just to be sure. Uh, otherwise, uh, in 1826, Joseph Smith is um, in trouble. Thank you, by the way, Tyson. Joseph Smith is in trouble because uh, he goes to help Josiah Stoll down in the Harmony, Pennsylvania area. And um, Joseph is working with Josiah Stoll. And there's cool stories. When Joseph goes to meet Josiah Stoll, uh, Joseph's mother indicates um, that Joseph was sought out by some, including Josiah Stoll, to use the stone to find hidden valuables. Joseph's reputation grows. And somehow word of his ability travels quite a distance. And uh, he uses the stone to find hidden valuables. Uh, it, here's the quote. And by the way, let's do this for just a moment. Let's have a little, uh, a little sponsor moment um, by, let's see here, by Family Pond. So let me share a little thing from Family Pond. We'll hide that there for a moment. We're going to stick the Family Pond uh, logo up in the corner. Here at Family Pawn and Hurricane, we love LDS artifacts. And one of the artifacts that we have here, this is a, a first edition. It's in a plastic sleeve, but it's a first edition of Joseph Smith's history uh, of his mother, by his mother, I should say. And it's his mother's writing about her family and then focusing on the life of the prophet Joseph Smith. It's in this book, this first edition. It's in this book that we first learn of Joseph Smith's leg surgery. And it's where we get this quote. She says uh, it, that Josiah Stoll came for Joseph Smith, came for Joseph on account of having heard that he possessed certain keys by which he could discern things invisible to the natural eye. So Josiah Stoll uh, essentially hears of Joseph Smith, his reputation, and then seeks him out to help him find treasure. It's in Harmony, Pennsylvania that Josiah Stoll and Joseph Smith, Joseph, Josiah Stoll is paying Joseph Smith to um, go do treasure digs. So Joseph would take his rock and his hat and he would go out and he would uh, bury his face into the hat and he would then tell the diggers who Josiah Stoll is overseeing and paying where a silver mine or other kinds of treasure are buried. And then these men would dig. Um, it should be noted, by the way, uh, if we go to, let's see here, give me a second to share my screen again. Um, it should be noted, by the way, these hills were expansive. And so we'll open one of these up here. 
if you go online and look up these digs, Dan Vogel wrote, I think it's a dialogue article where he talks about 17 different treasure digs in the Palmyra area. And I thought when I first encountered treasure digging, what I thought was going on was that people would uh, essentially Joseph would locate a treasure. Uh, people would then grab their shovels and they would dig a little hole. They would dig a, a you know, a 20 foot well down or a 10 foot well down, but that's not the case. There are two or three remaining treasure dig sites still visible today in 2020. And these are significant caverns dug out into the sides of hills. Um, you could essentially, you know, this would be a, a giant hole that you could walk into. And so this makes a lot more sense when Joseph then, when these digs get so far in, these men have put so much work in. And uh, these men um, are then told by Joseph Smith that the treasure has sunk further into the earth. It's gone, guys. Sorry, we can't get it. The guardian spirit's upset that we didn't do the spell right. And when we talk about treasure digging, it's not just a matter of putting a stone into a hat. It's not just a matter of doing that. It's not just taking this stone and putting it into a hat and finding a treasure. It's doing magic spells. It's drawing magic circles. It is, um, it is, it is a, uh, a practice that included, by the way, at least on from multiple witnesses, it included the um, killing of animals as part of the ritualistic practice. And so there are testimonies on record of from people involved with Joseph Smith and his treasure digging that Joseph would slit a dog's throat or a, a sheep's throat or a goat's throat and sprinkle that blood around in a circle and then do his magic ritual with his hat and his stone to try and find the treasure. And you had to do these rituals because they kept the guardian spirits, kept the guardian spirits at bay. And, and so that's what, that's how that would get done. That's how that would get practiced. So um, the other thing we run into is that um, as Joseph's performing uh, these rituals, again, sometimes they're not finding the, in fact, every time, every time they're not finding the treasure. Uh, at 1826, Joseph, when he's working with Stoll, is accused of being a fraud, and he is charged with glass looking. Glass looking is the legal standard uh, on um, on the books that somebody could be charged with with trying to incorporate magic practices. And so Joseph Smith would, uh, in turn, essentially get in trouble for being claimed to be a fraud and he would be taken uh, to court. And at that trial, Josiah stole, I believe it's his two nieces. They testify uh, that Joseph Smith has an ability and Josiah stole testifies that Joseph Smith has an ability. And, and so Joseph, there's some disagreement on whether he's convicted or whether he's let off. There's some debate that perhaps the judge just said like, look, Get out, you know, you escape, you run, you get out of here. Just don't come back. We just don't want your kind here. And so, uh, and so Joseph uh, in 1826, we have, by the way, I'll show you this. We have the, the court document. It was kind of cool that this was found, but we have the court document that shows the 1826 glass looking trial. Um, I'm going to see if I can magnify this at all. And it doesn't look like it's going to let me. It's not. Um, so unfortunately, there we go. Look at that. 
Winner, winner, chicken dinner. There is our 1826 glass looking uh, court case. The bottom is just the transcription. The top is the actual ticket that we have. And so some good sleuth work there, good detective work there. So anyway, back to, you know, the first edition, Lucy Max uh, history, Brigham Young called it a tissue of lies, kind of a cool little statement from Brigham Young. A um, uh, little note about that story is that Brigham ordered the saints to destroy their copies of the book. He felt like it was full of lies. He felt like it was going to hurt the LDS faction of the church and that it might hurt the reputation of the restoration. So Brigham uh, ordered it destroyed. And um, in the process of that, there I believe there were two different editions made. There is a, a little larger copy that was given to like the leaders of the church. And then this small one that was given to the regular members of the church. And the regular members could purchase. And Joe, or, uh, Brigham Young ordered them to be destroyed. And so most of the members went out and just threw theirs into fires or tore them up or you know threw them away one, one, one form or another. And so this book is actually extremely rare today. This book right here is about an $8,000 book. If anybody wants to purchase a first edition of Lucy Max History, uh, you can contact us at Family Pawn in Hurricane, Utah. Um, but that's, that's an option to have that book. And yeah, somebody's going to keep trying to distract us, but we're going to keep going. So I hope they're having fun. Hope they're just chuckling and laughing and having a good time. It's not very honest, not very, not very upright, but so be it. So um, did Joseph ever find anything? People ask this. Did Joseph ever do anything that we can say like, yeah, he nailed it. He, that stone works. And we actually do have some accounts. Uh, Martin Harris recounted that Joseph Smith could find lost objects with uh, his white stone. Um, it says here, I was at, this is Martin Harris. I was at the house of his father in Manchester, two miles south of Palmyra village and was picking my teeth with a pen while sitting on the bars. The pen caught in my teeth and dropped from my fingers into the shavings and straw. I jumped from the bars and looked for it. Joseph and Northrop Sweet also did the same. We could not find it. I then took Joseph on surprise and said to him, I said, take your stone. I had never seen it and did not know what it, what did not know that he had it with him. He had it in his pocket. He took it and placed it in his hat, an old white hat and placed his face in it. I watched him closely to see that he did not look to one side. He reached out his hand beyond me on the right and moved a little stick, and there I saw the pen, and which he picked up and gave to me. I know he did not look out of the hat until after he had picked up the pen. So that story is uh, pretty miraculous. And, you know, you could claim that Joseph saw the pen before, but Martin catches him off guard, asking him to use the stone. Um, so I don't know what to do with that story. That is a cool faith promoting story about how Joseph Smith, uh, could have miraculously, um, used his seer stone to locate something. On the other hand, we also have all these treasure digs where Joseph says that there are Spanish silver mines, which by the way, don't exist claims that there are Spanish silver mines in the sides of Hills. Josiah Stoll and a bunch of men that work for him then dig into these Hills 
and no Spanish silver mine is ever located. So on one hand, where we are challenged as non-believers with a story that Joseph uses the stone to essentially find a needle in a haystack, uh, almost essentially literally. And on the other hand, believers are then challenged to try and reconcile Joseph's treasure digging and just how absurd those claims are. Um, it should be noted. Um, it should be noted that uh, these treasure digs never turn up any treasure. And I and I think the apologists would come in here and they would say, like, look, uh, these Joseph is being asked by an outsider to find treasure that they know exist, and that Joseph is trying to find the treasure but that it's not him who's pushing for this to happen, but instead that it is the financier of the operation who's pushing for it. And we do have the one claim from Joseph that he was only making $14 a month and he didn't do it for very long. And we also have Dan Vogel saying there were 17 treasure digs in the Palmyra and surrounding area, many of which involved Joseph Smith uh, and his family. So we had this cool story about the, the pen in a pile of hay or straw. That's kind of cool. Uh, we also have a story about how Joseph Smith describes Josiah Stoll's property essentially deeply accurately. Uh, Josiah Stoll, uh, when Joseph Smith meets up with him, um, is told that the other people in Joseph Smith's party Joseph had told the other people in the party what this Josiah Stoll property looked like, what he was, what they were going to, and they would know it when they got there because it would look like this. And the claim essentially shows, if we take the story at face value, that Joseph had some insight into what the property looked like ahead before ever having uh, been there or laid eyes on it. Uh, McLean makes note, and it should be noted. Uh, we have testimony. He, he says we have testimony from people in his treasure digging camp that Joseph told him behind closed doors that he really can't see anything in the stone. Yes. We have multiple statements from people, including uh, Emma Smith, Emma Hale Smith's brothers and father that indicate that they were told by Joseph that he couldn't see anything uh, in the stone and that it was a fraud and that he would give it up and quit. Um, but his story to faithful believers was something very different. Uh, my friend Chris, Chris Bloxham, who uh, owns the family pond uh, that I'm working at right now, says ordering books destroyed hasn't really worked out very well for dictators throughout the past. Uh, it hasn't. Uh, destroying literature is a an abominable thing. It, it essentially destroys history when you destroy writings. And it seems like only when an institution or an entity or a people or a person are afraid of things, uh, do we uh, end up, um, those kinds of people ask for things to be destroyed. And it really just doesn't, it's really an abominable thing. Uh, when I think of all the cultures through history where foreigners come in and suppress the people and destroy their writings, the amount of history lost to the world uh, it's extremely sad. Uh, Jonathan Streeter says people who can find treasure with stones generally do so for themselves. If it's real power, why get paid pennies to find gold for somebody else? Hmm. Good point. Good point. Um, 
Again, just to note, no gold or silver mines are ever found. It also should be noted that the um, assumption here on the treasure diggers part, Joseph Smith's part and other treasure diggers, there is a treasure, Spanish silver mine, gold bullion, some type of, I shouldn't say gold bullion, but gold pieces um, buried in a hill and protected by a guardian spirit. And to find this treasure, you have to use a seer stone. Strangely, the gold plates are also buried in a hill protected by a guardian uh spirit named Moroni. Uh, it's buried in a hill. It's a treasure there. There's some ritual needed to get to it. There's involvement of seer stones. And so what many non-believers argue is the idea that uh, Moroni is just more of the same. Joseph is scamming people out of their money. And Jonathan makes a great point, which is Joseph and his family are barely getting by. Dad's an alcoholic. Alvin's trying to build the, the, the house. Alvin ends up dying. We believe that his appendix burst. We don't know exactly what happened, but the physician comes and takes a bunch of mercury and puts it in a, a ball of, I think it's calomel or calomel, and forms this small ball. And then, and then Alvin, you know, swallows this thing down his gullet. And rather than dying because his appendix burst, uh, instead this, uh, this mercury ball gets lodged in his intestines and he dies from that. But why be, why be broke and help other people find gold treasure? Why wouldn't you just go find the gold treasure yourself? Um, inquiring minds want to know, Jonathan. I don't know. My hunch is, as a non-believer, where I find the most rational thought to be is that the story is simply not, it's not honest. It's not, it's not true. Like, nobody has magic abilities. We all argue this idea that divining rods, you know, people go out with their sticks and uh, they walk around and when the stick goes down, that's where you dig and you find the water. And there are still people today who swear by water witching and scrying, uh, trying to find things that way. Um, that said, um, when, when people, there are people out there who have said, look, I will put up a million dollars for anybody who can successfully demonstrate that this works, uh, that this has an accuracy to it beyond just normal guessing. And nobody to date has claimed any of those winning funds. Uh, so that should be noted. Uh, if anybody has information on that, you can leave a comment. Would love to, to have that conversation. Joseph Knight also said that at the command of the angel Moroni, Joseph looked into his seer stone to learn who he should marry. He looked in his glass and he found that it was Emma Hale. Uh, Amanda, I hope you'll, uh, you'll pardon me for a moment. I'm going to give this a shot. Um, I'm not a big fan of polygamy, although I don't really care what people do behind closed doors as long as it is informed consenting adults doing that. But I'm going to take my seer stone. I'm going to place it into the hat. I'm going to bury my face. Oh, my goodness. Oh, my. Oh, I think I'm supposed to marry Scarlett Johansson. That's who it's supposed to be. Scarlett, if you're out there, if you're listening to Mormon Discussions live broadcast today, uh, I just received a revelation that you are supposed to be uh, my second wife. And so if anybody uh, has contact info for Scarlett, have her call me, tell her that I just got an answer with a stone in a hat uh, doing some folk magic. And that's the way it's supposed to work out. So hopefully that, uh, that happens. Um, there are other stones. Uh, Joseph first used a neighbor seer stone. We're talking about Sally Chase's green stone. So there's one stone that Joseph uses. Um, 
It should be noted that Joseph has the brown egg seer stone. Uh, hey, Mark just said he sees Shakira. Good revelation, Mark. If your hair stood up on the end, if your neck got tingly, it, I would trust it. I would trust it. Um, Jonathan Streeter says this sounds like half the proposals at BYU. Uh, yeah, one-way revelations uh, sometimes happen uh, when when people are at BYU and on the dating scene. Uh, Joseph also later on in his life uses two other seer stones. That should be noted as well. Um, I'm just trying to check my notes here. Joseph would later discover at least two more seer stones in Nauvoo on the banks of the Mississippi. These stones seem to have been collected more for their appearance. There is little evidence of Joseph using them at that late date in his prophetic career. Some of my notes, by the way, I, I took from Fair Mormon. They're a great source for the original information. Uh, not as great a source for the conjecture needed to make certain conclusions work. Um, one witness reported, this is the description, by the way, of the brownstone that the church has had in, uh, in, its, in its possession. Uh, one witness reported in 1826, it was about the size of a small hen's egg in the shape of a high instepped shoe. It was composed of layers of different colors passing diagonally through it. It was very hard and smooth, perhaps by being carried in the pocket. Uh, another quote, the seer stone was the shape of an egg, though not quite so large, of a gray cast, something like granite, but with white stripes running through it and around it. It was transparent, but had no holes, neither on the end or in the sides. I don't know what stone they're describing there, but we will look at a couple of other stones here. Um... This is believed to be a, a seer stone. See if we can get this one to show up in a decent size. Um, my, uh, my friend Chris Bloxham has, I think he still has, I don't know if he sold it or not. Uh, he has a fraudulent seer stone that Mark Hoffman created. Uh, Mark took an authentic Native American ritual rock, ritual stone. And, and Chris, if you're listening, if you want to type in some information, or um, I can even text you uh, the phone number. Give me just a second here, because I'd, I'd like to, if Chris is available, maybe get him on the phone. Um, give me just a moment, folks. I'm going to send him a quick text. He knows this story. It's a pretty cool story. Uh, and if, if he calls in, we'll try to pick that up. Um, but essentially, this the, Mark Hoffman took a an authentic Native American ritual piece and um, ended up putting a hole into it and did some other kind of etchings into it and then created a provenance for it, created a, a story that explains how it originated. And, and then that uh, essentially now becomes a fraudulent item that was originally something real and, and legit turns it into something tied into the Mormon folk magic story and then sells it off to people. Eventually the item came up for sale and, uh, and Chris purchased, um, purchased uh, the, the stone. And so I'm going to, I'm going to move on here, but I wanted to give me a second. Uh, I wanted to at least give him a chance if he's, if he's there to call in at some point. 
All right, let me turn my phone back on airplane mode. The So there's the description of the two stones. Again, I don't know if the second one refers to the brown egg and the person just kind of had some distorted memory. Memory, by the way, is something that does get distorted over time. Joseph may have used his seer stone to view the location of the plates after Moroni told him where they were. Um, so in other words, Joseph used the brown seer stone to locate the gold plates in the hill Cumorah. Um, there is considerable evidence that the location of the plates and Nephite interpreters, the Urim and Thummim, the Nephite spectacles, were revealed to Joseph via his second white seer stone. Now, he, I don't know that he had a white second, a second white seer stone. As far as I know, he has the white, opaque, translucent seer stone. And let me uh, give me a second here. Chris, are you there? You're in the shower. You're just probably just taking your spray and drying off, my friend. Um, let's go to the comments. I just want to make sure if anybody, if you guys can hear Chris, make sure that you Leave me a little note that he you can hear him, uh, but you should be able to. I want to make sure here. Give me a second. Give me one moment here, Chris. Um, remove from stream. Yeah, I don't know if people can hear. I don't know if people can hear you quite yet. So give me a second. All right. So people should be able to hear you now. Um, tell us about this Mark Hoffman. Uh, this the story behind this. Do you still have this thing? I do. The uh, Native American amulet that would have been worn around the neck with leather straps. But what Hoffman did was buy the amulet and then create a document where he says it was bought in Logan or it was found in Logan and I believe 18, 1850s. There, I'll shoot you a pic of it real quick. But it, uh, what he says was the, that the man says, this was a stone used by father to determine the gender of the baby being born the mother. So I don't know what the guy did. I don't know if he got down on one knee, held that stone up to the to his wife's belly and like, yeah, I see a boy in there. I see a girl, you know, better not be no Lamanites in there. I mean, you know, who knows what he, who knows what he figured out. Yeah. But, yeah. Uh, it was classic Hoffman uh, in that he uh, has even some scribbles out on the uh, scribbles out on the, um, on the paper. I'll shoot you an image of it real quick. It's yeah, cool. I'd, I'd love cool to. I'd love at. to see it. I also, but it should note, Chris. I mean, you and I talk about this stuff all the time. That um, what makes Hoffman's gig work is that he goes back into early Mormon history and he's constantly pulling out actual historical themes. And so the idea of using seer stones, it's real. It's a, it's a piece of history the church has up until recently tried to avoid. And so the church has a real interest in buying these artifacts and essentially keeping them out of the public eye because it protects the narrative, the correlated narrative they're sharing. And so Hoffman's brilliant at taking real historical themes and then implementing uh, them into his frauds. Exactly. Exactly. It was one of his brilliances. Absolutely. Cool. Yeah. Awesome. Awesome. You have a great day and I'll talk to you soon, my friend. You got it. Man, I'm going to finish my shower and shoot you that image off. Okay, sounds good. See you. Yeah, bye-bye. Uh, the holes in the stone. Somebody's asking. Uh, the idea would be that you would put your eye through the hole of the stone, and that's where you would see the visionary uh, thing happen. It gives you a place to focus. And so the the this rock would be a lot different, and that rock doesn't have a hole. Um, but the other ones did. And so give me a second here to find um da -da 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 -da. let's see here if 
Sorry, when you're doing the streaming stuff, you got to constantly be switching between different screens. Uh, we're going to go for about another half an hour, folks, and talk a little more about some of this stuff. Um, but the the stone should open up there. You would essentially have a place to focus uh, on the hole in the middle. And so you would put that into a hat or hold it in your hand. And that, that eye hole would give you a spot to kind of look through. And you could then focus your attention there. And then you would start to experience second sight um, or, or see with your spiritual eyes. And you can start to see how much all of this folk magic ties into uh, Mormonism. When you understand this idea of second sight and spiritual eyes, and then tie it into what many of the witnesses to the Book of Mormon, Martin Harris, uh, David Whitmer, Oliver Cowdery, who all claim to have not had a physical experience, but had a spiritual experience, um, and sometimes use the words of seeing uh, with their second sight or their spiritual eyes. Um, yeah, maybe, hey, McLean suggests that maybe it's Scarlett Johansson who's been trying to call me lately uh, on, the, on, the, uh, on the phone. That may be possible. Um, Let's go forward, though. The There's the quote again from Joseph that he used the stone. It said, and this was from, it says one account. I don't have a name of who it was. But it says, I had a conversation with Joseph and asked him where he found the plates and how he came to know where they were. He said he had a revelation from God that told him they were hid in a certain hill. And he looked in his seer stone and he saw them in the place of deposit. And so there you have a quote that shows that Joseph Smith um, would have used his seer stone to locate uh, the plates. Uh, so kind of a little interesting thing. It's interesting too. I mean, Mormonism has always avoided telling this story. And yet at times people outside of the church have, have gone out of their way to tell the story. Um, one of those instances is right here. Uh, it is South Park. And so the cartoon South Park showed the, the Joseph Smith using the hat, using a stone to receive revelation long before the church was ever comfortable talking about it. The church had the stone in its possession. It knew the story, and yet it continued to perpetuate a correlated narrative of Nephite spectacles. Um, and, and I can see why it did not want to get into it did not want to get into talking about treasure digging and folk magic. Uh, these are some of the articles, by the way, I think this is from D Michael Quinn. Uh, these are some of the magic articles that I believe Eldred G Smith might've possessed. Eldred G Smith was the last general authority patriarch of the church. And Eldred G Smith um, would have been kind of the person that the Smith family artifacts would have been passed down to. And so in this particular instance, this is the satchel. The other day, Jonathan Streeter and I did a podcast where we talked about a handbag being uh, worn around Joseph Smith's neck. And there was a depiction of Joseph wearing that. Here it is. It would have contained magical parchments in it. Joseph, by all the stories we've read today, kept his stone on his person inside a vest pocket or a, or a pants pocket or a shirt pocket. And it also sounds like he wore his white top hat 
uh, regularly and had that on him too whenever he was called upon or needed to use his magic seer stone or seer stones. So kind of a cool little thing as well, but that the seer stone was used in finding the gold plates. That was an interesting quote that I didn't know about. Um, we also have a cool story. Martin Harris uh, testing Joseph Smith. Once Martin found a rock closely resembling the seer stone, uh, Joseph sometimes used in place of the interpreter's and substituted it without the prophet's knowledge. When the translation resumed, Joseph paused for a long time and then exclaimed, Martin, what is the matter? All is as dark as Egypt. Martin then confessed that he wished to stop the mouths of fools who told him that the prophet memorized sentences and merely repeated them. My gut tells me there's two options here. You can believe that story. And again, the story is that they take a break from translating. They go out near a stream. Um, Joseph is off in his own space doing something. Martin sees a rock that looks a lot like the seer stone. Let's be honest, folks. How many of these rocks, uh, let's go right there. We are. How many of these rocks have you seen in your lifetime that look that round and polished and have that kind of color? There should be almost zero. No one that I know of has ever found an iron banded Jasper rock in the shape of that seer stone. And so we ought to note that. We'll keep the hat there in view. We don't want that thing to be hidden away. Um, so we could believe that, you know, Joseph puts his head in the hat. It's all dark in there. He can't see anything. But let me just tell you, by the way, I've got a white top hat. I've got my face buried in it. I'm excluding all light. I have lights on here. So I don't know what it would be like with a bunch of candles lit or the sunlight coming in the window. Or if I'm, I'm sitting next to a window, which I assume they would because they have to write and dictate as well that when I bury my face into this hat, there's no darkness in there. Um, you just see inside a hat. So as I bury my face and I'm excluding all light, there really is no light excluded. I can see as well into that hat with my face out of it looking in as I can with my face buried in the hat. Um, so I can imagine Joseph, Martin Harris takes a different rock. In fact, I've got one here somewhere. See if I can find it. I uh, don't see it handy at the moment, but I had another rock about the same shape as the seer stone. Imagine I put that in there. I bury my face. If I'm Joseph Smith, I'm now looking dead on at this other rock. I've had my rock for years. I know what my rock looks like. Suddenly I have this stupor of thought wondering like, what the heck's going on? And it clicks because I think Joseph has street sense. I think he's a smart guy. I certainly would figure this out. I don't think that it would trick me at all. Um, I would look at that rock and I would notice that it's not my rock. And I would go, why do I have a rock that's not my rock? And my first assumption would be, I'm getting played here. So let me turn the tables on the other person and let me play as if it just isn't working. And then we'll see what happens. Um, and so that should also be noted as well. Um, so you can believe the faithful account of that story. Joseph miraculously um, couldn't see in his hat because he excluded light. He discovered only because of it not working that he had the wrong stone. Whereas I think it's much more believable, requires a whole lot less conjecture than believing in magic to believe that Joseph recognized that this wasn't the rock that he had carried on his person and knew intimately for years. So why the stone over the spectacles? Um, quickly, I just want to go over this. Uh, Charles Anton, the guy that Martin Harris takes the characters to up in upstate New York um, or in New York City, I should say. 
And Charles Anton says that it's a good translation and then, you know, tears it up and says, no, it's not. Charles Anton is embarrassed by the Mormons telling the story about him that he goes out and publishes two interviews in two various newspapers. And in both of those newspapers, he said that the spectacles, the Nephi spectacles, Martin claimed they were too uncomfortable for Joseph to use. William Smith claimed that, um, that the uh, Nephite spectacles hurt Joseph's eyes. And so Joseph went back to what he was familiar with. Um, that's essentially the information. I want to give people a chance to talk, uh, to call in and have a conversation with us. And so um, give me just a moment here. So there it is. You can join the show by calling 435-277-0511. That will put you on the program. And I'd love to field a question or two if you've got a, a, a quote or a comment that adds some type of some type of interesting data to the conversation. Would love that. So to join the show, call 435-277-0501. Um, while that's up there, I'll pull up a couple of more pictures. If somebody wants to call, feel free to. But let's let's get a couple of other photos here and talk about some of these. So here's a picture of a treasure, a treasure dig happening. Um, I can't remember the gentleman's name. I wish I knew it off the top of my head, but he's working on a uh, animated uh, storyline of Joseph Smith. And uh, I believe if I'm not mistaken, this is one of the art pieces from that, but you can see there's Joseph up on top of the hill, looking into his hat, receiving some visionary light coming through. And then you've got the treasure diggers digging. Again, the, the intimation here is that uh, the box of treasure is just a little bit under the earth, but the reality is that we're talking giant caverns uh, dug into hills. And so there's that one. Um, this should be another one here. There's another one of uh, some type of treasure dig happening. I don't know the story behind this. They haven't gotten very far. They've just begun the dig uh, on this instance. It is fun when you look back at the story we were all given, and the church likes to blame the artist, but it's not fair. Um, I know for a fact, having spoken to sources close to or are these artists, that they had to get approval for what these pictures look like, that they were not given as much freedom as the church likes to intimate about how they could do these, um, these depictions. But this is the narrative we got, right? Joseph has these spectacles. They are fastened to a breastplate. He's got the plates in front of him. And so much artwork in the church depicts the translation this way. The church so rarely talked about anything to do with the seer stone. And they never contextualized the seer stone enough. They never contextualized the seer stones enough that you could have with any ability without being a private amateur scholar or or professional scholar of some sort, put the story together. And when you're left with bits or pieces, your brain goes with the dominant narrative. Your brain goes with the correlated story. And so the story we get are that these Nephite spectacles are attached to a breastplate and that Joseph is translating just as depicted in here. Um, somebody talks about were the rooms lit as they are today? No, I'm sure they're not. I mean, we're talking uh, candles, uh, rather than light bulbs. 
Um, but we ought to recognize that there is a scribe in the room who's writing. That scribe needs to see what he's writing. Um, so there had to have been some degree of light. I, I have to assume there's a window with light coming in. And I have to assume that if, it, if that's still not good enough, that there are some candles lit to allow Joseph Smith to see um, um, into his hat enough to make out what's going on there, as well as for the scribe to see what he is writing down. The, the narrative is such an odd thing. Uh, again, if you want to join the show, call 435-277-0511. And so now today we're finally starting to get some real depictions of the translation. <clears throat> the plates are under a cloth. Joseph doesn't even need them. Think about Nephi. Think about Alma and Abinadi and Mormon. Um, think about any of these ancient writers, these allegedly ancient prophets who, who spent hours and hours and hours etching into these metal plates only to have them not be used, um, to only to have those, those plates not be a, a real part of the translation process. And once you understand that Joseph can just bury his head into a hat and tell the, Nephi, tell the Nephite story, then you never even need plates in the begin with because now Joseph can just put his head in a hat and God can just communicate to him this ancient history, even if those ancient prophets don't write that history down on plates, because that's essentially what's happening anyway. Um, we have so much 19th century material in the, I'm sorry, yeah, 19th century material in the Book of Mormon that um, it becomes really difficult when you understand all the tangents of this story treasure digging, whether the plates were needed, spectacles to a stone. Um, when you consider, you know, Brigham Young saying that uh, Moroni had to go all the way to Manti to bless the temple site, um, that kind of travel becomes absurd. It requires so much conjecture to, to make these accounts work, so much conjecture to make these accounts work, um, that it just becomes that the moment I, and again, I'm an outsider now, I'm excommunicated, I stopped believing, I was excommunicated for telling the truth about the dishonesty of a specific leader, uh, Jeffrey R. Holland. And uh, once I stopped believing, it just, everything made sense. Like I no longer had all these mental gymnastics, all these, all these mental gymnastics and loopholes to go through. It just became clear like, oh, it's just not true. And then everything makes sense. Like why the plates had to be covered and why Joseph uses a seer stone and why uh, treasure digs resemble um, Moroni and the gold plates in a hill and, and why prophets get it wrong all the time on everything and constantly claim that the world is lost and fallen, but constantly move in the same direction as the lost and fallen world. Uh, Ryan says, if Joseph could access the contents of the plates without looking at them, why not leave them secure in the hill instead of putting them at risk? for theft by having Joseph retrieve them? Good question. Um, good, good question. Um, the plates would be safer anywhere other than in Joseph's possession while he's using them. And then there's the idea, right? Like somebody will be smitten dead. Like, don't look at them. Don't you take that, that, that sheet off of them and look at them. You'll be struck dead immediately. And then that also begs why even then protect them while you're running through the woods uh, with people trying to um, take them from you, 
because you could just show that to them and they would just be struck dead. Um, the other thing is why not use the seer stone in the hat to locate the lost 116 pages? You see, the moment you start asking logical questions, you have to start adding in conjecture, lots of it, to make the believing story hold up to work. And so we're left with a Mormonism that is slowly beginning to fade away. Um, Bruce R. McConkie's Mormonism, that Mormonism that was fun. We had answers to every question. Um, that is slowly vanishing, if not already gone. And our 20-year-olds are growing up with a much more naturalistic um, explanation for things and much more obfuscation around the details of the restoration. In other words, we're leaving lots of room for lots of ideas and lots of thoughts and conclusions. We don't want to talk specifically about anything because 20-year-olds uh, are growing up in a naturalistic world uh, around them, and they now know how to find answers to things by simply doing a Google search and looking on Wikipedia. Here is a art depiction by, I believe it's Anthony Sweat, if I'm not mistaken, is the artist. Um, and there you have a depiction of Joseph getting ready to bury his head into the plates. That must be Oliver Cowdery behind him um, doing the transcription, doing the, uh, doing the dictating. I'm sorry, the uh, writing down. Um, anyway, if anybody wanted to call, we're going to go for a couple more minutes. 435-277-0503. Um, I hope still, yep, still have that. So certainly would love to hear from you. The last thing I wanted to show, and this is for me the, the giant crux of all of this, um, there's, there's a level of deception from Joseph himself. Joseph doesn't want you to believe that there's a seer stone involved. He, he wants to avoid talking about it. He wants to avoid any kind of uh, conversation uh, about seer stones, about treasure digging. And that becomes crystal clear here. Um, give me a second banner. Let's get rid of the phone call line. Uh, Joseph Smith said, I obtained them and the Urim and Thummim with them. So Joseph is telling you what he means by Urim and Thummim. The only Urim and Thummim that was with the plates is the Nephite spectacles. We're always playing word games in Mormonism. Ah, Urim and Thummim, that could be anything. Could be a rock, could be the Nephite spectacles. It could be your breakfast pancakes. It can be anything. But Joseph here tells us what it is. It's the item that was found with the plates. I obtained them and the Urim and Thummim with them by the means of which I translated the plates and thus came the Book of Mormon. So here we have Joseph Smith telling you that he used the Nephite spectacles to translate the plates. That's the story I grew up with. That's the story every other 35 to 120-year-old grew up with. And today, the church uh, says, no, that's not exactly true. Um, we think both items were used. And here's the trouble. Again, we're getting into where the church whitewashes stories and doesn't give context. When Martin Harris switches the rock on Joseph, it is very clear. Martin Harris is only involved in the first 116 pages. It is very clear that Joseph has already switched based on Charles Anton 
And based on Martin Harris switching out the rocks, it is already crystal clear that Joseph is only using the seer stone at this point. He, the, the Nephi spectacles are too uncomfortable. They hurt his eyes. And by Charles Anton's testimony and Martin Harris's testimony, we now know that the uh, egg-shaped seer stone is the primary mode of translation for the entire book of Mormon that we have today, because that book does not include the 116 pages. And so today, what we have is this rock. This rock is the translation method for the book of Mormon. Um, I should note here, folks, would you please consider donating the Mormon Discussion Podcast? Uh, we plan to do a lot more of these. We plan to have live conversations about the various data uh, in each of these messy issues. Um, I just, I, if people can help uh, the podcast, if you do one thing today, if you'll go on to mormondiscussionpodcast.org, if you'll hit the donate button, if you'll donate five bucks a month, 10 bucks a month, this takes time, obviously, right? To put together all of this stuff, these pictures, the, the quotes, the data, these are things I know well, they're ruminating in my head, but I still have to do research. I got to go back and refresh my memory. I got to go back and grab interesting things. If any of you uh, are finding this beneficial and want to see these kinds of things go on, would you please, please, please become a recurring donator at Mormon Discussion Podcast? Dot org. Click the donate button. Donate five bucks a month, ten bucks a month. If you're if you're more financially capable, uh, fifty bucks a month, a hundred bucks a month, a thousand bucks a year. Whatever you want to do, you can put the amount in too. I believe, but it really helps the podcast. It really helps us do these kinds of things, such as these live broadcast. Uh, I'm Bill Real. Um, uh, was a Mormon for over two decades. I understand the history quite well. Uh, there are people who know Mormon history better than me. There are people who know specific uh, arenas of Mormon history better than me. But I don't. I don't think there's 25 people, uh, 50 people maybe, uh, who who understand the history overall, uh, breadth and scope, um, the ins and outs from various pieces and parts of Mormon history, uh, as well as say Radio Free Mormon. I think he does. Um, I think people like uh, D. Michael Quinn. I think people like Richard Bushman. Um, uh, but I, I think I understand Mormon history well. I think I understand the tangents that uh, that are that affect this. And and I want to talk about these kinds of things for lots of years to come. But in order to do that, I need uh, folks to be willing to contribute financially so that the podcast can grow. Uh, we raised about Mormon discussion raised about thirty thousand dollars last year. Uh, other podcasts raised their own funds, uh, but Mormon Discussion raised about thirty grand last year. And to be honest, um, going forward, we we got to increase that. Um, I would love to 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 do more of these kinds of things and to dedicate more time to this kind of stuff. But but at that point, we would need donations to kind of go up. Um, I hope each of you are having a great day. Thanks for joining today. It's been my uh, my pleasure. I hope you've learned something about Joseph Smith and his treasure digging and his folk magic and about these really awesome seer stones. Um, and you can come buy a piece of iron banded Jasper at family pond. If you want to stop in, we do sell them. We also have book of Abraham facsimiles and other types of um, uh, Mormon artifacts and replicas. And so we'd love to, to see you stop in the store. Welcome to, you're welcome to come in and I'd love to talk with you. That's the hurricane location or in Southern Utah, we call that hurricane. 
Um, hope you guys have a great day. Thanks for joining us. And I'm out. <laughs> <laughs>